I think the reason to care about social change is to sort of take seriously our stewardship of the world and our stewardship of history and believe that somehow like God works through grand sweeps as much as the small. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Have you ever had a friend who you just loved having a conversation with? They're always fun and it takes unexpected turns and you just can't stop laughing. And no matter what the rabbit trail is, it just, you just go away with so much life. And before you know it, your time's up and you just got to go. You know, that's how I feel about today's guest, Ann Snyder. Ann's a returning guest and editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. I really do enjoy talking with Ann. She's thoughtful, insightful, and more than willing to let you know when she doesn't have a good answer, but she's willing to attempt one anyway. She's also just a lot of fun. The last few years have been more than a little chaotic and overwhelming. What started as a conversation about the importance of understanding social change as Christians quickly expanded into a discussion of AI. How the civil rights movement galvanized a nation and created real change as opposed to more current movements that perhaps start in a good place. Get co-opted and create division. The recent Asbury revival and perhaps surprising thought about counter-catechesis, the idea of developing tools and structures to bolster ourselves and especially our kids against the realities of an increasingly hostile culture. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation just as much as I did having it. And I want you to know that content like this is available because of listeners like you. We're looking to raise an extra $4,000 each month so that we might be able to create for you the content that you've come to expect. Content that will help you water your world wherever you are. Simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that works for you. And thank you ahead of time for helping to water the world. Now, let's get to my conversation with Ann Snyder. Happy listening. Ann Snyder, welcome back. To thank you, Travis. Great to be back. Boom, it's good to see you. Great to see you too. You give the best welcome of any podcast host ever. And I say that as a fellow podcast host, but your style, I got to emulate. It's like, welcome to my bourbon drinking session by the fireplace. It's great. It's great. Very convivial. Thank you. Oh, and you really got me going. Maybe it's the cup of You're coffee. red right now. Your whole I face am. just turned red. That You're doesn't watching. happen very often. You, you embarrassed me. You embarrassed me. I don't know what else Are to do. moody grads allowed to drink bourbon? It just occurs to me. I may have offended you. I don't know. Yes, they they do. Matter of fact, I had Malcolm Guide on the show and he's like, can I drink on the show? And he was smoking a pipe and he was drinking a pipe. I'm like, I love it. Two bearded I, woodsmen who are silent, uh, quiet poets. Oh yeah. Smoking a pipe was, over Zoom. That's perfect. It was just so funny. It was just so funny. Anyway, and it was St. Patrick's Day too. So that made it even worse. Perfect. It was like nine o'clock his time. So <laughs> I don't know if he remembers the interview. I should say <laughs> it was a really good conversation. He had made some amazing stuff, but no, I'm not offended by that at all. But okay. <laughs> do you remember and are you ready for the fast five? 
I I am ready. Well, I'll I'll just have to be ready. You'll so have go to be for ready. it. Now I know that you went on vacation. And what yes. was the the your most favorite meal on your vacation? Mm. Where was it? I have only really learned romance languages throughout my life. And we went to well, we went to the Czech Republic and Austria. And in the Czech Republic, it was my first time really around the Slavic languages and i'm not going to remember i found it very difficult and i'm not going to remember the name of the restaurant but i remember the subtext of the restaurant um which is bohem bourgeoisie which was funny because my husband like coined this word bobo which is the same concept of these like left-leaning upper middle class people mm. and we stumbled upon the sign and we were laughing like look at your impact you've like created this concept and um and we decided to walk in there and it was just the most amazing meal. And turns out it had like a Michelin star and it was the splurge of our vacation, but it was, um, it was delicious. The textures, well, the, the flavors. I mean, I remember the raspberry sorbet at the end. I can't even remember it. At first I get intimidated by the small when food is small. I oh, I'm yeah. enough American. I really do like the overflowing fries, <laughs> but um, when you're in Europe, you do as the Europeans do. And the presentation was beautiful, but it was just, I can't even explain it. The way they sauteed the mushrooms. I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but it was just, there was the right amount of garlic, the right amount of salt, the right amount of cumin. I mean, I'm a bit of a cook, so I kind of like, I just taste all the layers. Uh, I'm not snobby about it, but it was, and then the service, like it felt like when you go to New York city, most of the waiters are way overqualified for what they're actually doing and they're all I think acting on Broadway and then they're paying the bills by waiting tables and so they have this like poise and shoulder posture and they're like running around the room and they're I feel like in these New York City restaurants they're all in like a they're doing a rehearsal for the play that night they're all just like in coordination <laughs> and this restaurant felt a bit like that but these were true like wait waiting table professionals and yeah it was a whole choreography so that was just almost as delicious as the food awesome I love that. I'm, it, you've made me hungry just by listening to I, I wish I could remember the exact dish. It was the whole thing was too magical to like reduce down to, I can't even remember the specifics, but yeah, it just left. It was one of those things where you're like something as neut morally neutral as food really can be the reason to live. This is a highlight. <laughs> no, it's funny. You and I are both singers. So I remember a friend of mine, he was performing it like a solo and ensemble. And by the time he was a senior in high, this is high school, but he says, by the time he was a senior, his goal was to make the judge put their pen down so that they could just marvel at it. And I think a chef has done their job or a cook has done their job when I just want to put my fork down, close my eyes and savor the bite. Yes. Well said. Exactly. Oh, so good. All right. Here's your second question. Your favorite store to shop at in person is what and what? Michael's Crafts. My daughter <laughs> this was there. She just quit. <laughs> she just quit your she daughter worked there yeah she well, I, I, I can't imagine maybe their their labor union isn't so great i mean i yeah. I, can't, I, I think it's more of you don't quit jobs you quit bosses that kind of that's what it is but she i mean i know so many people that love michaels what do you craft you know, it's more, I think, childhood nostalgia. When I was a kid, I was pretty crafty. I did a lot of, yeah, I'm so going to geek out right now and being very G-rated. Um, I did a lot of counter cross stitch, beading, um, collage work. Like, And I'm not that artist, but I, I don't feel I'm skilled artistically, but um, 
there's some, I would say as a kid, if I could go into a public library or Michael's crafts, and then of course I like a candy store that those three things are like my version of heaven. Um, and I think, so there's still that child in me, but when I go in, I don't know, like it's, I'm sort of surprised a that Michael's has lasted and B frankly, all the tiny little, I assume like family owned businesses that like create these random, like the sticker on a magnet or the construction. I think it's, it's the colors. It's the, it's the raw ingredients that you can create something of your own with. I'm a big, still a big fan and believer in homemade gifts. Um, So that's just what pops into mind. I, I could spend quite a bit of time, not even buying much, just like curious why, who out there, it's like when you see a horror film in the opposite way, you're like, what person am I sitting next to on an airplane who is directing a movie this scary? Are these people out there? And that that's in a bad way. At Michael's, I'm like, who are these business people that are creating these most random little flower petals? And for what? They just trust in the human and genius spirit. So <laughs> that's, very, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I've never even thought of it. I mean, the horror film stuff, I'm like, these people need help. Uh, don't you feel that way? I just, I mean, I know there's like very sophisticated movie critics who I like and admire who love horror films as a genre. And they think it tells us something about the redemption of the universe, but I find it pretty depraved. Yeah. I'm with you in that regard. I've never been a horror film, film person. I do like the kind that those old, more of the black and whites where they, they don't do a lot of scary stuff, but it's how they use silence and lighting and music and how they bring you into the story. That that's a little bit different, but even then like a Hitchcock kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Like the birds, that's a, that's kind of a, I don't know if you ever saw that old black and white where the birds come and the birds are yeah, the bad I know character. the story. I've just never seen Ooh. it. I don't like birds. Yeah. <laughs> well, birds. this will make you like them even less. See, I don't like stuff. I, I don't like those films where it makes me think of stuff that's going to attack me. Like my, when I was a kid, my mother watched this movie and I just looked it up the other day. It was this something, it was on PBS and it was uh, this killer doll, this Amazonian doll that oh, like, like the dolls. I, was, I, I was so scared. I ran into the back room with my mom. We no, I, television I, on. I never even saw those movies, but I remember going into the old, remember those, like uh, when we had VHS, the, the movie rental stores and like all the horror section when you would just like race by that aisle were all movies about dolls. I think there was one called the fame. There's a famous doll. It was really scary. Uh, it'll, it, I won't remember it, but just in the, yes. And like just being actually in the Czech Republic, I was going out, we were going to all these little medieval towns in these mountains. And they had like, doll shops i guess the checks love dolls and i didn't want to come in for that reason i was like they're staring at me why are their faces so porcelain they're about to crack into blood somebody posted a photo on facebook it was in some dad group and he goes my daughter gave away her toys to like the goodwill he goes and i took one of the dolls and then i set it right outside of her bedroom window facing it the next day like the doll came back so when she opened up her window she's oh like, that scream would be blood curdling no thank you <laughs> oh that's funny no that thank funny, you anyway all right next question because you are a singer the well, best shower song. singer yeah well that's the question here so the best song to belt out in the car when no one is around or with friends is what and why or, or musical you can pick a musical too well, I'm sorry. I, my memory, my long-term memory has gotten worse and worse. And so I'm just going with the moment right now because I just got back from Austria. I like literally every minute I'm just singing the hills are alive. That's just, 
I'm just walking around waiting for my little Austrian dress and Maria Von Trapp to pop out and no apologies. So let's see. Uh, Julie Andrews, what year? Julie Andrews, 19. The film, I think, came out in 61, maybe 64. We could look that up, but kind of right before the real part of the 60s began. So 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 you can sing it? Well, I'm not going to do it right now. Oh, come on! No, I'll no, do it with no. You. <laughs> <laughs> the hills are alive with the sound of music. Sorry, I studied <laughs> musical theater. That's what I was going to go into. And then God oh. has humor and put me into pastoral ministry. Well, there, there's uh. a re- related like performance piece. And um, what do you have a favorite musical? Oh, you know, I, it started off in the 80s. So, of course, like Lame is, and it's become cliche now, almost kitsch. But I, I always loved Phantom of the Opera. There's some that I enjoyed just because of the musical pieces, like Shenandoah had some really cool musical pieces. Um, but I loved, I used to sing a lot of stuff. Like I, w- I was actually in a show choir. We're going to get fully uh, you know, open here. So I remember even choreographing some songs that we did to Lame Miz. Wow. That was a lot of fun. It is actually one of my most embarrassing moments too, because we were singing, I was singing empty chairs at empty tables. I think that's what it was. And uh, it was early on, I think I was a sophomore and I was always told when you're singing a solo, you get feedback, pull the mic back. Right. So I kept getting more and more feedback. And by the time I ended, I think the microphone was down by my hip. And it was because (laughs) I didn't adjust. I was young, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, that learn from that but there's so many musicals i like i like the music man or no is the music man not music yeah music man, music man and, uh, yeah what's the new one that's oh, not new anymore um the one that hugh jackman did what was not that la la land no. No, no no he didn't do la la land he did um you know where he where he did with zach efron and oh, high school musical no, not okay. Come on, I it's, think Zach Efron was in that, right? He was, but he did okay. something else after that. Now you make me have to look it up. I mean, I he, was just before this podcast because I'm just coming back from vacation. I had I had this like high school musical song pop in, like get your head in the game, get you, get you, get you, get you. Get you. <laughs> so. What is the name of the show? He because he's such a great singer, and we have very similar um, vocal range. So I can't, uh, I can't, I'm trying to find it. It's uh, this song. It's going to drive me crazy. I know I'm going to think of it. The Greatest Showman. There oh, it is. The Greatest Showman. There you go. Did you have great... Heartbreak when Shanae O'Connor, this is less musical theater, when she died last week? I did. Like, were you and never a big... Yeah. But Sinead, you know, I had nothing compares to you in my head. I remember watching Saturday Night Live when she tore up the Pope, the Pope. photo. And I remember going, that doesn't seem good. I didn't yeah. know what was going on, but I'm like, I don't think that's a good thing. Everybody's yeah. speaking out. I know. And so I was just like reading more about her life. I kind of said she was a bit of a rat. I grew up on her music. Like that was my childhood in many ways, which is interesting because, yeah. Um, but I was, I was like, oh, either the issues haven't changed, but like all the things she was reacting against feel like exactly 2023 like like she was at either ahead of her time or nothing has changed and we're still in that same 40 50 year era of like discontent and um yeah wrestling frustration angst everything else mm-hmm. okay well here's the next question number four the best writer you have ever read is who and why oh gosh well first person who popped into my head 
um, is living, Christian Wyman. Um, he, the poet at he's at Yale. Um, he wrote My Bride Abyss and uh, he ran Poetry Magazine for a while. He would uh, like, in fact, he would be wonderful on this podcast. He, really? he would know Malcolm Guide well. Um, yeah, Chris Wyman, he goes like Chris, he's, he's struggled with very severe, a very rare form of cancer for about 10, 12 years. And he kind of writes out of that place um but his book my bright abyss is one of those it's very difficult to summarize and describe but it's it's sort of in a gorgeous way like stunningly beautiful prose gets at the ephemeral sensations of faith and it has he's kind of been a gateway to think very starved secular readers who are i think hungry for an experience of god uh don't love doctrinal baggage but are looking are sort of open to the the sensations of prayer and listening and all that so he's the first who pops in my head just because there's i just wish i could construct sentences like him um but i'm sure there are many others and there may be one who's even more who i would say boom this like i want to write like them i could never write write like chris (laughs) i'm amazed the ability of poets just to go about their job and do it so well and so frequently even reading he would just come up with these poems and put them online. And I'm, of course, imagination is just drawn into the heavenlies. And it's like, wow, how do you do that? It's just a I gift. Know. It is a gift. a gift. All right. Here's your last question. Although I think you've kind of already answered it in various ways, but we'll ask it anyway. One thing that very few people know about me is what and why? Oh, dear. Besides the Julie Andrews, the doll phase, the, the, yeah. the sewing. <laughs> We've learned uh, a lot today, Anne. We've learned a lot. Well, I think probably pe- people who who read me know this, but it's just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong and Australia, and that is like has always set me a little outside American footing. I I I don't. I still feel like a student of this country that I'm meant to be serving through my work, and I. Uh, it remains a perplexing nation to me. I think just because of a childhood that wasn't here. I, I do find that many of the people that were born outside of the country have some of the greatest insights into the country. Oh, well, thank you. I'm not sure I'm Tocqueville here, but but thank you for that. <laughs> I will I will allow my shoulders to rise up a bit. <laughs> On that note, let's, let's move to, let's talk a little bit. Um, the last time we met, I mean, we of course know that you are an editor and the editor of Comment Magazine, and you've been writing about charting social change. And there's a lot of change going on in our culture right now. That's not a secret to anyone. Some, this is a welcome thing. And to many others, there's a great deal of fear. But why is it imperative for us to really chart social change and what do we hope to learn from that? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say it's imperative. I run a magazine and so we explore things that curi- that are curious to us. And I, the sort of genesis for, we actually did something unusual. We spent two whole issues of just basically six months of the year in various forms in the magazine, through podcasts, through events, just trying to understand this whole phenomenon of how social change happens. Not, we know, we know change happens. Like we're about to enter this perhaps whole new era of AI coming down the pike. And I think the more I'm learning about it, I'm finally taking seriously, like this could actually be quite a momentous shift. Um, we, it may not be, but I think it's more likely this than even social media was, or than even parts of the industrial revolution or so we're about, so we know, you know, things change from advances in technology, uh, natural disaster, um, 
swells in immigration. Like you can look at societal shifts based upon those kinds of moves that are more incurred either by crisis or war or invention. But I was interested in specifically like movements and movements that shift the norms in a society over centuries. Um, and I don't think, know if it's imperative specifically for people of faith to think about that or explore it. But I, but I do think there is something about when you pray the Lord's prayer and you say, you know, you ask like thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that is a line that is asking for some level of co-creation with God in the redeeming of his world. So I'm interested in these like inflection points that we can look back on and say, what was going on when suddenly everyone decided that or not suddenly, but over time, everyone decided that slavery was an abominable evil. Like when before that, churchgoers and Bible scholars were often using those texts to support it, just as an example, or what was going on when people decided, I'm, I'm always interested in the rehumanization missions, like what was going on when like women were suddenly given greater equality. And um, it was actually a side note, interesting, just being in the Czech Republic, I went to the Museum of Communism and it was, they begin at the end of World War II as they take you through the sequence of Stalin and Mao and in the early years, like here we know like, oh, communism in its actual reality has been so bad. But as you begin and you sort of see these post-Hitler, post-fascist era, you see the propaganda posters. And I was like, oh, this is, everyone looks so happy in these posters. I probably would have been drawn into this. The women are so equal to men, like women were brought in. Like <laughs> it, was, it was interesting just to be like, well, there's different forces that are often modeled morally in terms of what they yield over the long term of history. And I think God can sort of God use can use all of our misguided visions of reality and visions of the future. So the short, I think the reason to care about social change is a, as a Christian is a, to be, to sort of take seriously our stewardship of the world and our stewardship of history and believe that somehow like God works through grand sweeps as much as the small. And we were interested in exploring both the huge and the small, the public and the private, the hidden and the public activism, moral change versus legal change. The second like large point to make is that my and our interest in social change in, in a funny sort of way is equivalent to an interest in coherence like what is cohering our world and our and specifically in the west like our society and i think i have felt in my own lifetime that when i read letter from a birmingham jail and i study like all the different like local ways in the deep south where you are that wound up like unfurling into this civil rights movement and sort of the genesis of that earlier in the century and I'm like so moved and I think the Christian in me is deeply moved because I see this like many becoming one and I see conversions of heart and mind and I see people who had long been victimized stepping up to the plate and self-sacrificing to lead and be patient and be gracious. And there was this like movement that ultimately I would say that's like some move of the spirit was happening through courageous people and strategic coordination and it felt like it created a sea wave in shifting a nation. So now to be called a racist is to be considered is like one of the worst things you could be called. Mm -hmm. And why does it feel like movements since then that have 
been hashtagged out on Twitter, that have been Occupy Wall Street, that have been Black Lives Matter, that have been Me Too, like these various things that like rise up in the public consciousness and in our media. Why does it feel like while many of them begin from a worthy place, they tend to fracture our society months later or a year or two later, they don't create this like permanent groundswell that leads to more greater justice that leads mm. to a shalom. They tend to just like wind up, they enter into a tribalized era and people are not converted. They're hard hearted. And so I think out of my own frustration with the sense of on the one hand, to your point, there is so much technological change. It feels like life is going faster than ever. Time is just, we can't keep up with it. We're all overwhelmed. Um, we all feel isolated somehow as we're doing our best, but it's just, there's, there's not a sense of like one national with, of course, fractious and debate. We can always have that, but there's not a sense of like a coherent move together towards a new day. Even if, even a little iterative new day, all of that is largely driven by Silicon Valley. Like the United moves are driven by technology, not by like a positive vision of the good that is shared. Um, so out of that frustration of like stuckness and disintegration, was just this question of like, could we ever see? I mean, that's why I was so moved by watching. Again, this is as a person of faith, but I was just really moved by watching what happened at Asbury earlier this year and that outpouring of just like, I do think like ultimately there's something charismatic that needs to happen and a movement of the spirit of God that stirs us. And it's not about elites and it's not about human pride and credit. Like there's something that is instigated by God himself in ways that are mysterious, but can we set the conditions to listen and respond? Um, And the jury's out on, you know, what that outpouring is, you know, what has happened. And I think probably some, probably a lot of things have changed at quiet hidden levels. That's not covered in any media story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still haven't seen like institutional coordination or health prepared to respond to that kind of awakening. But I was given so much hope by watching that m- largely on YouTube because it felt like, okay, people are getting to the end of themselves. This is a, this is a community of people I'm watching humble themselves and like begin from a place of like personal confession. And that seems to be the healthiest place to begin to whether it's confessing Christian nationalism or whatever. And so, yeah, it's a desire for people to take their responsibility as stewards of thy kingdom come seriously. And it's also a yearning for coherence. Which is not easy to do. You know, you talk about the spirit of God at the end of the day is who is the one who must bring revival, a trans, a deep transformation in those deep structures of culture. I remember I was going back and forth in an email thread with uh, James Davison Hunter about those very things. And it's not easy to generate that on one level. We say, Hey, this can happen. And we see these, these whispers of it. There's these little, uh, yeah, they're, they're being whispered about and you do want to see it. And I, and I, like everyone else marveled. I, I couldn't believe how many people jumped on it to knock it down. I know. It, Unfortunately, you... I sort of could believe it, but I, I, because I was initially skeptical. I mean, I have a charismatic strand to my spirituality, so I'm always open, but I, I wasn't sure at first I was hearing rumors of it. And then finally I, I just like encountered it. I, someone, a friend of mine went, took a video and I just like watched it, experienced it directly 
albeit through a screen. And I was very moved, like spiritually, I just like the Holy Spirit was like, this is real. Something mm-hmm. really real is happening. And then you watch like the guys, the gospel coalition and like the Doug Wilson's of, you know, I don't have Doug Wilson himself, but like that type of naming names, just to name names, <laughs> like just are like, this is emotive. And yeah, my first reaction, I was very angry and annoyed. And then I just, you know, it's not surprising, um, but it is interesting who those critiques come from. And it's like, there's, why have we so lost the expectation for God to show up in a burning bush? It, something about that feels like a major, um, it, 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 we should be, we should, we should be ashamed of our lack of preparation. You know, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that I was having a chat with uh, Jamie Staples. She runs a ministry to Muslim women in trauma called the Truth Collect. And she was talking about some of the women in their Bible studies. She's going to kill me because I know she listens to the show. So I better make sure I get to get this story straight or she's going to be texting me going, you missed it. You messed it up. <laughs> but she was talking about the difference between Western women and women from majority world cultures. And she goes, Western women know how to do a Bible study. She said, they know how to study words. They know how to answer the questions. It's easy for them. Whereas the women in majority world cultures are less familiar with that and know how to go about it. But if you ask a Western woman, has she heard from God? She, she doesn't have, she, she doesn't have the, the ability to say yes or no. I mean, she, she really just doesn't know how to answer. She doesn't know how to encounter God. And now again, I know that some of my, my very um, reformed and, and uh, cessationist friends are like, hey, no, we have the word. Yes, I agree. You have the word. And, but God speaks through his word and speaks to our hearts and, and realities where you know it's him or you know it's not. I mean, we're getting into deeper waters right now. But she said, those women from majority world cultures don't have a problem hearing from God, whereas the women in the Western world very much do. And I don't know if you saw the statistics. I can't remember if it was Pew or where the data came from, but it was talking about the decrease in denominations in the United States and every single denomination decreased, but two, uh, the Presbyterian church in America had a huge jump. And I'm going to attribute that to a lot of factors, no less being Tim Keller, uh, just awareness to PCA and just showing the intellectual and cultural ability to interact. But the other one was the assemblies of God. And that's not a surprise when you look at it globally, especially as we become more multicultural and you see majority world cultures. Now there's error in that as well. And that's what I find my friends are so quick to point out that there is error and I'm not denying that, but there's also a lot of good and there's a corrective that I think is going on just to answer your point of how we can't hear. And I think if we interact with some of our brothers and sisters and learn to hear, I mean, even when I started off in pastoral ministry, there were prayer meetings and people seeking God. And I don't see those very often anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like creating, being open to silence. I mean, and there it's, what's funny is there's often like high liturgical traditions that do actually understand the structures for this to like, they understand the structures of what I would almost call like spiritual pregnancy in a community. Like how do you wait? And expect and prepare and hear but then sometimes the high liturgical traditions also lack 
uh, other spiritual muscles. Um, you just said something, Oh, I, I'm, I happen to be in a moment of agonizing over kind of updating comment magazines manifesto, like just sort of who are we, what do we believe? And what is the story we're inhabiting and trying to pick up and run forward with and sort of a 2000 year relay race of this Christian social thought tradition. And one thing I'm thinking of emphasizing is that we really, though we are a magazine, so therefore we are an organ of words and arguments and um, imagination through words and hopefully images and art. We believe in beauty um, very much. Um, but it's just this notion of different ways of knowing, like we really believe in different ways of knowing. And that is as much a, I think, majority world versus Western world, if you want to divide the world into those two categories a thing as it is of course men men and women and you know you, it's very it's very fascinating if you spend a lot of time in black churches or certain kinds of immigrant churches in the u.s versus like a pca church in nashville or like that there's that there are different ways of like i think what's so fascinating about jesus is he could sort of do it all like he could argue up here but there was something in his eyes that if you were deaf but not blind you understood you were encountering god and i think about why is it that i always tear up when i hear someone with down syndrome or someone who has a huge stuttering problem or who is brain damaged or who's a quadriplegic get up in a church and read a passage of scripture that's like for me there's something there's there's something that they know and that they see that i and all my like quote able-bodied and like mentally like sound um working or whatever the right word is like get tripped up by there's there's like an intimacy they have that somehow rooted in like apparent sort of weakness and there's just there's other ways of knowing outside of the brain and thankfully i mean i think psychology today helps us out we there's a reason like the body keeps the score was such a bestseller a couple of years ago. You know, we, we do, I think we are opening up in the West um, to non-cognitive 18 inches down other ways of, of knowing. And even like actually I'm sure Hebrew, you know, Hebrew scholars would have beautiful seminars on the word to know and like all the different ways, what that actually has meant biblically and throughout the globe over history. But it's something about that actually feels very crucial to perhaps even this question of social change. There are so many questions that even come with that as we're talking about the spirit of God working within these institutional factors. It's usually, as you mentioned earlier, we see oftentimes um, a split. People go to one camp or the other and they can't keep that nuance and tension. But we, we do see that there are rhythms to, and you've already alluded to this, there are rhythms to life, there are rhythms to our culture, and sometimes there is a coalescence of spiritual factors. Mm -hmm. But there are these also generational shifts. You could map them out. I mean, no, you and I are both familiar with like the fourth turning. How do we discern what is spiritual, just simply generational, and just simply charting the cycle of human development or movement? How do you differentiate between that? Or do you? Maybe I'm asking you too big of a question. Maybe we need to ask someone else. That. I literally, well, let's we actually about funny. I'll have to share like, this because it's a kind of a fun story. <laughs> I once in a while get a little courage and I go for like the big dogs. And as we like see certain kinds of thinkers to contribute to our magazine. And I literally, I don't have any direct line to Pope Francis, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I know someone who knows him. And I asked that person, uh, Catholic, who's like super involved in the upper echelons of the Vatican. I was like, any chance, like I have this pitch that's basically that question. We're are, we're doing an issue this winter. It's simply called Church, Where Are You? Or Church, Who Are You? Which is a little unique for us to sort of turn our 
lens on our own people uh, and look inward in some ways. But um, I wanted a global piece. I wanted someone who was spiritually discerning and kind of under would understand like how the spirit of God is moving through Latin America and Asia and Africa and the West and Europe and North America. And yet who also has deep institutional responsibility. And um, this person was so sweet, wrote back like a week later and was like, you know, Pope Francis is ill right now. And I'm not like, like, can you tell me more about like how you see him answering the question? And I'm happy to try, but it's just, anyway, I was like, Oh, he's actually considering this. So um, I don't think we're going to get the Pope, but I say that to say I do. It is too big of a question for me. And I, you know, I, I go back and forth. I, I when I started out in my twenties, I had, this was in the early, um, sort of the Bush era. And then Obama was, was like whispered on everyone's tongues is this like hope and something about that era, like 2006 to 2008, I had this audacious like instinct. I was like, I need to start. And I'm so glad I didn't do this, but I was shopping it around. I was like, I should start like a little nonprofit that's studying millennials because this, I think millennials at the canary in the coal mine of all of our social changes. <laughs> I'm in red. I'm so glad I didn't do it, but um, I was really interested in generations. And yet I've talked to so many people who are skeptical, like people I respect historians, sociologists who, um, and even the fourth training is a little debatable, like who, who I've gotten more insecure about, like, what is a generation actually? And, and I think there is something to be said for like how generational differences are shifting what, when they used to be, you could call a generation 60 years. Then it was, if we're just looking at a lifespan, then it's 20 years, like parent child. And now it's like, I talked to Gen Z years and within Gen Z, it feels like already there's three generations. Like the 26 year old is super different than the twenty three-year-old is super different than the 20-year-old. And so there's something shrinking in terms of if I could define a generation by mores, vocabulary, and norms, that makes sense to me. Um, so all that is to say, I think between the spiritual generational and then the sort of psychological development, human development cycle of human maturity and maturation, I don't know how to exactly differentiate between um it's, it is a coalescence and I'm going to need someone much smarter than me to kind of divide it out as a well, even then, I don't know. As you said before, I'm not sure if any of us know exactly how to chart it out. Even if we brought in Mark Knoll or David Bevington, I'm sure that they would have. Yeah. Peter Berger. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of these guys would have a, their own theories on exactly how it plays out. My, my, my question though, is as I do see the generation's age, there's always some type of difference between generations, but there are similarities as well. I want to know what the practices of spiritual formation and counter catechesis are so that we can help our children be faithful no matter what generational turn comes along. As a person who is seeking to renew the institution, what role does the institution play in our understanding of spiritual formation at the social level? Now, I know that's not one of the questions we've talked about beforehand. Normally, we talk a little bit about that, but I'm just curious. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that? No. Yeah. Well, I, because I've just started to keep referring to this little week on vacation, but um, <laughs> this going to Aust- I think going from the Czech Republic where I was like, thinking about world war ii and then communism and then going to austria where i was like unapologetically like going to every sound of music pasture that i could <laughs> and then reading i was like i'm i think i read it years ago but i'm rereading the autobiography of maria von trapp and i'm always that sort of generation of those like world war ii like frankly the few 
like shockingly few, disappointingly few Christians, European Christians um, during the Holocaust who were helpful um, and and heroic. Um, I have just always loved those books and those memoirs. And I've been just meditating on why is it you know, you, t- you talk to some of my Jewish friends in the, in the U.S. and, and they'll say, you know, we, most of us sort of know that it was really only the Christians in the Netherlands that, and a few of them at that, who were, who were helpful to us. <laughs> Everyone else like sold out. Um, and I was, as I've been meditating that on just the last few days, like what was going on in the churches or, other perhaps institutions and neighborhoods in the Dutch context specifically that didn't exist in other countries as Hitler was taking over. And um, there's a one, you know, there what obviously in the confessing church in Germany, there's a wonderful book that's sort of an unusual biography of Bonhoeffer by a friend of mine named Laura Fabricke um, that I highly recommend called Bonhoeffer's house. And she spent years, her husband was a diplomat in Berlin and she spent years just being a tour guide at Bonhoeffer's house. So it's less a book about like celebrating all of his public individual heroism and more looking at the quiet fabric of his life. Like what was going on in the creedal and church rituals? Um, what was going on in his daily dinner table growing up as a kid? What were the songs? What were the, his artistic rituals? Um, obviously like even like what did the, what did the home indoor and outdoor life look like? And it's sort of like looking at the actual atmosphere and the environment that shapes us and um, that led to these, like, I mean, I think someone can be anointed and someone can be called, but there's also these like helpful sociological, atmospheric, formative nudges in our lives that are often institutionally rendered and granted to us. Um, So um, that's a long winded to answer your question, but uh, today I think to use this, I actually had had to look up this word, the counter catechesis. I was like, why are we doing counter catechesis? Don't we just need more catechesis? And I guess Tim Keller used it um, at some point and maybe others have. And I guess it means how to, how to do this, how to do like deep formation when all the forces in modernity and in a broader, largely, you know, secular mainstream culture um, are, are tempting you in another way. And I would say just a few things. I mean, I think historically, like say in the nineties and early two thousands and like the Dobson era, and now I'm going to turn to the U S context. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of focus on the right content and the right values and not exposing your kids to certain kinds of films and certain kinds of music and so on. Then of course, a lot of that got channeled into certain kinds of political action. And there were aspects to that. I, you know, that I'm sympathetic to, um, but I think the older I get, and I'm not alone here, this is something about the challenges of our particular time, largely because of technology, the pace of life, uh, um, sort of eroded social fabric, eroded local community life, um, thin, thin social moral life, all of that, that is, I think, has accelerated over the last 20 years, us spending way more time on screens than with real flesh and blood people or with the earth. Um, there's something about raising a family that is oriented around shared rituals and time that is oriented around the creative um and uh like really compartmentalizing when the devices are out um 
that is sort of like pushing back against consumerist passive withdrawing activities that where the home itself models um in some ways is like a mini church like models deep engagement with one another full presence creative joy mischief humor and i do think not not and i'm not trying to idolize the nuclear family here but i do think there's something profound about literally being born into a mini little world that is highly engaged humanly speaking that is a form of counter catechesis insofar as once you've tasted the fine wine of that daily intensity in a household then so much of a more a broader disengaged cynical um suspicious uh solitary you know frankly all the dynamics that wind up leading in the extreme to mass shooters um all of that is seen for the thin gruel that it is and your appetites are so i think exploded as a baby young child teenager um and of course that family interacting and the broader culture hopefully in ways that are new deft and you're not really sheltering your kids i mean all of that is i'm, I'm not the one to give parenting advice here but um i think that there it's in some ways it's more about rhythms and atmosphere and sort of wholesomeness early on and deep human engagement that feels like the counter catechesis we need um and i've wondered i mean there's obviously homeschooling is exploding right now largely post-covid as um you know and, and not just amongst people of faith but uh i'm i'm i've been very curious like how will families of faith that because of their faith uh have, are creating mini ecologies for kids to to um not be thrown into the sea of competitive comparison online and all the stuff that happens on social media like how will those kids grow up to perhaps to be the leaders and be better equipped to be the kinds of leaders that the country needs um in ways that even if you're gunning for harvard but you grow up in a household that is allowing you free reign online and allowing you to you know, or they're overly meritocratically pushing you into a million scheduled extracurriculars. Um, I don't know, like there's, there's just, I think we're in an interesting moment where if a family takes like the call of love seriously in child formation, um, those people may wind up being the ones that we look to in 30 years in a way we're not going to be looking to others who have maybe the pedigreed formation, but not the, um, like deeply loving fleshly formation. I enjoy this conversation. I enjoy every time that we get a chance and opportunity to talk. But once again, we have lost our time. As you said before, we're under the, the tyranny of the schedule and the tyranny of the urgent. But I think that your comments are extremely insightful into where our culture is right now and the need uh, for this deep spiritual formation that in some ways is not really new. I, I even think back to it's very ancient. I mean, even with the nation of Israel practicing Sabbath, that carved out exactly. time. Shabbat. Yeah. Exactly. All of those, yeah. all of those different things. Um, 
but once again, we, you're going to have to come back again because we have to actually finish a conversation. I think I got through like, <laughs> it's my fault. I totally am the, the no, worst host. No, it's my fault too. I mean, no, you're get, the best host. Talking. Thank you for making this feel so natural. I really, <laughs> it's such a gift. It's a gift to your listeners. I feel like everyone loves eavesdropping on a conversation that's happening naturally and you allow that to occur. So thank you. You're going to make me blush again. And... Stop it. I'm going to start blushing again. Um, I do want to get into some more of what you're doing with comment. I mean, we only got through maybe a quarter of our questions today, but there's just so much to talk about. There is. Yeah, there there is so much to talk about. And we, like you, are maybe becoming a bit of an eight-headed beast instead of a one-headed beast. So we're... And that's, I mean, I think I, I feel very kindred spirit with what you all are doing in Apollos Watered. And uh, it, I hope it's it's an exciting time to trying to be doing what we can maybe upstream to provide this like canopy of a different way of engaging our broader culture, of being a social witness, of thinking about, say, the relationship between prayer and our public life. And I, mean, I think there's just a, there's something really interesting happening in the realm of spiritual formation, public witness, believing in institutions, but also believing in the Jesus way and the organic metaphors. I think a bunch of us are in that turf, whether we're in the thought world or we're doing social service work on the ground. Um, and I'm just really grateful you guys exist and we can maybe be arm in arm somehow, even if we just wave across the miles. I would love that. We'll see what God does. But I know you've got a hard stop. We, we, we hate to end our conversation, but in that line, and since you're in Julie Andrews mode, we want you to sing so long, farewell, Advita Zane, good night. So long, farewell. May I taste my first champagne? Yes. No. From bourbon to champagne, we just got a little classier, full circle. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Travis. Whenever I talk with Anne, I leave the conversation with something to ponder, usually more than one something. Anne walks in different circles than most of us do, and sometimes it's precisely that which causes me to pause. For instance, I mean, my church experience would be considered by some to be low church, but her comment about liturgical structures helping to create space for people to hear from God makes me think. It makes me wonder how building that kind of structure could help me to develop a proper posture and ability to hear from God. Or to hear her talk about counter-catechesis, not as some formal structure set of things we know and learn, but as formation through family life oriented around shared rituals and time, creativity and models of deep engagement with one another so that when the dehumanizing yet tempting aspects of our modern world come knocking, our children will recognize that they can't come close to delivering what true life is through deep engagement with one another. That families who do that may well be producing the leaders that we need tomorrow. These are the kinds of conversations that spur me to think better about my own faith formation, to look for ways to live that out. There's definitely a lot to chew on, but these are the kinds of conversations that spur us on at Apollos Watered to help find better ways to live out our faith in a world that is watching, skeptically watching to see if we do have a better way of living and if we actually look like Jesus. It's our prayer that we do, and we hope that conversations like this help spur you on to live out your missionary encounter every day. 
Let us know how we can help you do that. Drop us a note on Facebook or Instagram or simply email me, Travis at Apolloswater.org. And if you do us a favor, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.